Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and on this episode, my guest is Gemma Amor. Gemma is a Bram Stoker Award-nominated horror author, as well as an illustrator, voice actor, and podcaster. This interview took place in early October 2021, shortly after the release of her book Six Rooms, and the audio adaptation of her story Dear Laura for the No Sleep podcast. So the episode begins, and I'm very pleased to say I'm joined by Gemma Amore. Hello, Gemma. Hi, Tom. Hi. And my first question to you is, what are we drinking? Uh, we are drinking strong black coffee from my Scrabble letter G mug. G is worth two points on the old Scrabble board. Very Should good. be worth way more. Yeah. And is this something that you drink whilst writing, or is this do you all just get up and go? Yeah, this is my st- stick my coffee pot on the stove, give me something to actually function and get going, drink that I make at home. And then if I'm out and about, I'm a flat white coffee lover. I like a good artisanal hipster coffee with a little fluffy heart in the milk on the top. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. And where I'm speaking to you now, this is your home office. Is this where you do the majority of your writing? Yeah, so I have a study in my my house upstairs and it's a, just a small space with a custom desk which my husband's just built, actually, which is lovely. And all of my books and my framed things on the wall, my artwork and some certificates and things, just stuff that helps inspire me and keep me going when I'm having a slump. And this, it's got a little couch for me to sit and do research. And it looks out over a nice park with lots of trees. So it's a nice space. It's a tiny little writer's hole. Yeah, it is nice. It can get a bit confining sometimes, but on the whole, it's a nice place to retreat to. That's nice. And has this always been your writing space from when you began writing or is this something that's developed over time? So when I first started writing seriously and I guess writing full time, it wasn't really through choice. It was through the fact that I'd been made redundant from two jobs in a row because I wasn't very well and I wasn't performing very well in those jobs. Although that's a very reductionist view of what actually happened. But the point was, is that it coincided with my son who, who started school and I realised that from nine o'clock until two or three o'clock in the afternoon every day, I had a big chunk of time that I needed to use for myself, which was as a kind of newish parent, the idea of having time to myself after four years was a bit frightening. And I was also, I wasn't particularly well. I had a lot of mental health issues and considerations. So I needed a way to use my time that was good for me and that actually helped me explore some of my feelings but also I've always wanted to take the writing thing seriously I've been a writer since I was a you know a child and I never had the time or the energy because when you work you don't have a lot of energy left over at the end of a working day particularly if you've got kids as well so I um I remember wandering up and down the, the Gloucester Road which is a for non-Bristolians, it's a long, lovely road full of independent cafes and charity shops and electronic stores and stuff. And I walked in and bought myself a secondhand laptop for, I think, about 100 quid. And then I developed this really healthy routine, which I do miss ever so slightly, where I would drop my kid off at school and go straight to a coffee shop and sit down. And I'd write from maybe nine until one or two straight through. And then I'd have a break, do a little bit more and then back on the school run. So I didn't work as much from home to begin with. And it wasn't really, I didn't really have the setup here for things that I needed, like my podcasting equipment. I've got a Wacom tablet because I do book cover designs and things now. Like I've got all the things set up now, but it takes time to get all that equipment together. Like you don't need all those things to be a successful creative, but the tools do help. If you're like being a photographer, you need the right equipment if you're going to make money out of it for a living. I have found through necessity and through habit and through the pandemic that this has become my main place of work because I didn't have a choice and everything else was shut. But now things are open again. I'm definitely roaming a bit more with my laptop again. And that's quite freeing. And I'm finding that I'm writing better stuff with just my laptop than at my desk with all the fancy tools and equipment which is interesting yeah I think a a bit of freedom can always help and just a a change of space definitely I think a lot of writers feel quite anchored to their space as well and actually I, I wrote an article for a website last week about creative burnout and as I was writing this article giving other people advice and asking myself lots of questions a lot of light bulbs went off in my own head about the fact that I am horrendously burned out 
And one of the tips in there that I very sagely wrote for other people that I didn't follow myself was that a change of scene is as good as a rest. And it really, really is. And I, if I'm editing a book, I'm in the final stages of a book, apologies to the environment, but I will still print it all out. And I'll physically take myself out of my study and go and sit somewhere else to read it and review it with pen, red pen and stuff. Because I find that helps. I can focus better. I love going to coffee shops to work because I think there's something about the background noise that I find quite soothing. Although not always, particularly if you've got someone on a really loud business call right next to you or screaming baby or some incredibly loud people. But on the whole, there's something about being in that buzzing environment that relaxes me and I think it makes me feel a bit less alone because writing can be a very insular job very insular and you on your own in your own headspace in your house alone thankfully alone because last year I shared my house with two very loud boys and I wasn't ever alone and that was a completely different set of problems but it can make you a bit nuts I think so I Forcing yourself out of your house, if you can, and working somewhere else is definitely recommended. Good. And with your stories, are you someone who starts with a character or a world setting? How do your ideas tend to expand and germinate? My process isn't particularly structured. I am not one of those people or one of those writers who will sit down and meticulously plan a story, a character, a novel, anything. I probably should because it might make the writing process easier. But I have this thing where if I know where a story is going, I immediately get bored with it and don't want to do it anymore, which is a problem with my brain and how my brain operates. I have very short attention span in general, so I combat that by working on multiple projects at a time. And so with stories and with short stories or any creative project, really, whether it's a script, um, a painting, whatever, I tend to I tend to let my brain fix on something that's made a very strong impression on me. Okay. So it could be anything. I could be watching a movie and a particular scene could strike me and really stick. I could be listening to a piece of music and feel suddenly, wow, okay, that makes me feel a certain way and I need to explore that. I could be out for a walk and I could spot something. I might have a memory of somewhere I've travelled to. I've done kind of a fair bit of travelling and globetrotting and those memories are quite anchored in, in my brain. So sometimes I find myself reminiscing and I want to write about that. Sometimes characters will pop into my head or not characters so much, but conversations will suddenly pop into my head. So a snippet of conversation, like a sentence or a phrase, will stick its head up over the parapet and go, hi, I need attention. And then I might take that and then I will just organically let it run and see how the conversation plays out. And then I find that if I do that, if I want to write about a certain setting or a certain conversation between two people or a certain feeling or emotion or just something I want to explore and if I start letting my fingers do the work sooner or later out out of that a scene will evolve and then a chapter or a section or a paragraph and then I look at what I've written and then I start thinking about the mechanics like the hows the whys the the wherefores the what are the character dynamics? Are they facing any particular challenges? Where are they? What are they doing? What are they going to do? Where have they been? All of those sorts of things come as a secondary thing for me. Like often, I I guess I'm what you call an intuitive writer, where I just listen to my brain and what my brain needs to explore. And I just bash out whatever comes to my mind. And then I find that I have the kernel of a good story or a good novel. So what I'm currently working on at the moment is something that I'm not being commissioned to work on at all. <laughs> so all my commissions have taken a bit of a back seat, but it's an idea that came to mind that I just couldn't shake. And suddenly I'm 11,000 words in and it looks right. like it might be a novella or a novel. So who knows where it'll go, but it feels right. And that organic writing, I think, is really important, particularly if as a writer, you suddenly take your hobby and turn it into a career. Yeah. And then you find yourself writing for other people a lot. You get commissions, you get contracts, you have obligations to fulfill and you st- Stop being able to do that organic writing as much as you were able to. And I think some of the fire goes out of you when you are so deadline driven. So at the moment, because I am very much experiencing burnout, I'm listening to myself and allowing my brain to play again a little bit. And that's the kind of writing that I enjoy more than anything else. 
I have quite a few questions off the back of that. Um, <laughs> the first one that sprung to mind is how long when organic writing does it take you to formulate a first draft? Do you find yourself stopping, uh, going back, or is it just your, your writing seems to evolve, you get a first draft and then you go back and you try and tidy it up? No, I am a terrible self-editor who constantly revises as I'm writing, which often means that with a novel or a long short story, short stories are not quite so much of an issue here, but anything longer form, it usually means that the first quarter of it is fucking amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And then the rest of it, I've run out of energy a little bit and you can tell, and I don't put as much energy into revising those because I'm usually then pushing deadline, which is something that a more structured writer would probably allow themselves a bigger chunk of time for. And so interestingly, because I'm self-published up until now and worked with small indie presses, a book that I have coming out next year is my first traditionally published novel. And I'm working with an editor. And at some point over the next month or two, she's going to send me an edit letter with a big chunk of suggestions for how to make that book better. And I very much anticipate that she's going to look at the first quarter of the book and go, hey, and then look at the rest of the book and go, here's where the majority of the work is. So my brain is quite a messy place. It's quite a tangled place. And it makes drafting things difficult sometimes because I run with the momentum of the idea and I do the organic thing up until a point where I hit a block and with novel writing that's normally around the 40,000 word mark where I start to run out of juice and that's because I haven't really thought about the plot as much as I needed to. What I find myself doing at that point is assessing what I've written so far, going, ah, okay, how do I drive this forward to the conclusion? Because I normally have a fairly good idea of a final scene. It's like when you're walking up a hill and you're halfway up and you're like, oh my God, I've I've got so much further to go. And you don't have that adrenaline to push you because you're near the end and you're not near the beginning. So you run out of energy and then find myself stepping back. And I, I, I print off the book as it stands, which is normally an absolute mess because first drafts are messy. It doesn't matter if you're the best writer in the world, they're, they're still messy. And I then get a big whiteboard and I start plotting down all the questions that I probably should have thought about at the beginning. How do these characters relate to each other? What are their individual struggles? What are we trying to say with this novel? Where do we want it to go and how? And what are the stresses and challenges and environmental factors and all these different things? I then fudge it by reading and rereading what I've written and making lots of notes on the physical copy. And what I'll find that helps me with is if I have an idea in the middle section of a novel, I then understand that I need to go back and write it in in the earlier stages for some foreshadowing or to work that narrative thread through. You can't just introduce a brand new idea halfway through a book and expect it to stick. In answer to your question, I have a very untidy process because I am a very impulsive, organic person. So maybe that's why I I sometimes find short stories easier to write, but there is a running joke between a lot of the people that I work with who published my short stories, like the No Sleep podcast, the editor there has a running joke that my short stories are a minimum of 18,000 words long because I just cannot write a short story anymore because <laughs> everything in my head wants to be a novel, I think, and wants to be a big idea. I have big ideas. One of the things that I know I need to work on next year and that I'm really looking forward to is working with a traditional editor who can rein me in a little bit and guide me through the process of structure and planning because I guess I'm self-taught as much as you can be as a writer like I studied English literature at university but I've not done any creative writing courses or had access to other authors on a regular basis to talk me through these things so I'm feeling my way very much through this entire thing it's done me well so far but I think there's another level of my writing that I can get to if I'm able to get my brain to cooperate which is difficult sometimes because of my brain. I think some of your stories are absolutely fantastic and uh, my favourite being White Pines and that does not come across as an organic writing project. Yeah but it was an absolute bitch to write that novel. (laughs) I, I ditched the first 20,000 words that I wrote of that yeah. book and completely rewrote it. That kind of answers the question I was about to ask. Is to say, do you find in the organic writing process that you're having to kill your darlings? And I think killing 20,000 words. So, yeah, so that book was an interesting one. So White Pines is my genre-fluid, supernatural, Celtish 
cult horror alternate reality novel thing that doesn't really fit into any genre particularly nicely but I'm okay with that and it started with a scene that popped into my head and the scene was the prologue and the prologue is uh, a woman on a barren island who experiences things materializing and disappearing in front of her just little flickers here and there and I was so taken with that imagery I decided I wanted to write something bigger about it and I had not written anything longer than Dear Laura which was only 28 thousand words which was my novella that I'd published so I wanted to challenge myself and write a novel and the only way I could think to do that was to make myself accountable so I actually started a kickstarter and to get the book funded so that I could afford a decent cover design and some editors and all the rest of it as I wildly and grossly underestimated how much money I needed to raise to cover the cost of postage but we won't talk about that So I suddenly found I had a year in which to write a novel. And so I started writing. And the original idea was that the protagonist would be a journalist who was exploring the disappearance of an entire town, an entire community who one day just vanished. And it was set in some like generic forest in America. And it had a very generic opening scene where it's a team of of bored local regional journalists and let's go and investigate this mystery and I got 20,000 words in and I found that not only did it not feel very authentic because I had no idea what the place was like that I was actually writing about I didn't understand enough about American culture it felt very tired to me but also it just didn't feel right like in my gut I ran out of steam because I just didn't like it I didn't like where it was going I didn't things started to raise themselves as questions to me like it was set in the 90s, which the, the novel I ended up writing still is. But it was a, a, pl- a part of America that wasn't remote enough for people to not suddenly go, what the fuck, 33,000 people have just gone missing. We need to make some fuss about this. And I couldn't think of a way in which to write the novel where there wouldn't be the military and the police involved and all of these things, as would happen if 3,000 people suddenly disappeared in the middle of America. So I then had a massive existential crisis because I'd wasted two months writing something that was totally unusable. And I began to realise that the problem was not with the concept. I still really wanted the concept of a town that disappeared, of a community of people that disappeared, but the setting. And the setting needed to be remote enough that perhaps people wouldn't notice if a large number of people disappeared. And why they wouldn't notice is perhaps because those people wanted to disappear in the first place. They wanted to live somewhere very remote and cut off from the world. So I started to investigate islands. And my husband actually pointed me in the direction of a small island off the coast of the Scottish Highlands called Anthrax Island. Or um, it's a small island in a place called Grignard Bay. And the island is actually called Grignard Island. And it was sold to the military in the Second World War so that they could experiment with anthrax, which meant they bought a bunch of sheep and tied them to poles in the middle of the island and dumped a shed load of anthrax on it and saw how long it took them to die horribly. But it fascinated me because the topography of the the land around it, the isolated feel of the island, the military history, all of these things suddenly clicked in my head. So I then threw away 20,000 words. And I started from scratch and I started with a lot of research, a lot of Google earthing. And then I took a research trip up there and I drove around the Highlands for a couple of days on my own in a little rented car. And I stayed in a hotel near the bay and I wandered along the beach and I looked at the island and I thought about going to the island. But then I thought, no, it's probably still covered in anthrax. Uh, (laughs) And I began to develop a sense that the book was actually not really a kind of town in America disappears book it wanted to be a folklore book and it wanted to soak up the Scottish folklore and the the culture and the geography and it wanted to talk about bigger things as well like alternate realities and myth and all sorts of things cult behavior um so then all of a sudden it started to write itself and I still hit the middle stodgy bit but I wrote my way out of that by just doing obsessive amounts of research into as many things as I could and then I found the ideas kept coming and eventually a year later a bit later than I meant to deliver it but I finally finished it and I was actually happy with the end result but it was a very painful process writing that book. I learned a lot of lessons it was my first full-length novel. I did learn how to write through 
writer's block and to write through the stodgy middle. I hated it. I hated that book by the time I'd finished it. But then slowly and surely people have been feeding back that it's it's quite an unusual book, I think, in that it doesn't really stick to one particular genre. And I think it works. I think it works. It Maybe there, there are always going to be things that I want to fix, but yeah. I've read a lot of your work and I think the narrative is really strong even though the story behind it might be sound very messy and like you say it was quite an arduous journey to get to the end i love that book it's the one i always recommend because i think it's so different from a lot of things i feel like it's the book that wanted to be written as opposed to the book i was trying to write and i think the power of a research trip as well and immersing yourself in the environment and being able to write about the small tiny details surrounding you and the the taste of the salt in the air or the the ivy on the headstone of the cemetery those little details it's so much more authentic to me that book than it would have been had I set it in the Appalachian mountains or whatever and it just wouldn't have worked because I don't know enough about it in the future I'll probably take a research trip out to somewhere well, actually, that's going to be my next question. It sounds like your attitude to research you know, sort of fundamentally changed through the process of writing that book. Do you have a desire to uh, research more for future yes. projects? Yes, I'm going to set it in the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> bora Bora. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think if I look at the stories to me that have the most bite to them, they're all stories that are set in places where I've been. Um, or visited. So I've just finished writing a story about the um, ancient Ram Inn in Wooden Under Edge, because that's somewhere that I've been to. Even Dear Laura, which has got a very nondescript forest in it. It's interesting because I've just adapted that for the No Sleep podcast and I had to Americanize that, although there were still a lot of things I forgot to, like trousers, but hopefully they don't hate me too much for it. I set that originally in the the New Forest in Hampshire because it's, it's a huge expanse of woodland. But there's one particular scene where Laura is sitting on a road. She's been sent on a fool's mission and she's sitting on a road in the middle of this forest. And I've been to that road and I remember standing there and just thinking, how random is this bit of tarmac in the middle of the woods with cattle grids and all the rest of it? So I think for me, research comes in two forms you not everybody has the ability or mobility or funding to be able to just fly off to the highlands of scotland and do their you know research trip but the internet's a wonderful thing and there are many videos and so much audio and a lot of things you can still soak up the environment quite well i think because white pine started out that way for me with a lot of google earthing that's how i knew i wanted to set it there because i basically walked along the road virtually that that went around the bay for hours I just zoomed in and out and I got a real feel for it that way so research comes in in two forms for me physically going somewhere if I can or using somewhere that I've traveled to I'm quite a physical person I love to travel and explore but then also doing the reading around it and the online stuff and just immersing myself in it and and I generally find that if I've got writer's block and I'm really stuck and then if I plop myself into an hour or two of solid research around some tiny little thing in the novel it kick starts me again and there's a detail that I might pick out so let's say I'm really stuck and I can't think of a way to move forward with the story but I just want to learn more about Scottish myths or whatever so then I end up looking at Pictish stones and symbols and then I realize I really like the idea of symbols and geometry and then I start thinking about sacred geometry and then I start thinking maybe I can use that as a plot device to drive this forward Mm. because sacred geometry could be something by which the local people communicate with a series of triangles and circles and squares and then maybe I look at the do you know what I mean it just from one small thing that you read big things develop and flower I think And another thing I wanted to go into, because you mentioned very early on with the organic writing, we discussed that, but also you're commissioned for a lot of stories. And I'm just wondering with your organic beginnings of stories, but also the amount of research that you're willing to do for your stories, how do you approach a story on commission? How do you structure those stories? So interestingly, I think the biggest example of a commission that I've just delivered on a big scale was the newest novel I have out. It's called Six Rooms and it's a haunted house novel. 
And that was as a result of Cemetery Gates Media, who came to me with an idea that they already had. And I think originally they wanted it to be an anthology and they wanted a series of writers to write around a theme, which is a very common thing with anthologies. And the theme was, here is a house, everybody pick a room and write a kind of spooky story based in that room and around a certain character. And it doesn't matter when it's set or who the character is, and we'll compile it. And then I think they rethought that and decided it might be a good basis for a novel and then they brought me on and said can you do this in novel form and I'm not one to say no to anything so I was like yeah of course I can yeah but it was actually quite intimidating because there was a lot of uh, law that they'd already put in place so the novel is set in Sunshire which is a fictional region in America where previous anthologies from Cemetery Gates Media have been set. So there was already some backstory that I had to incorporate. There was a cast of characters, some of whom I wrote about, some of whom I didn't. And then there was the house itself that I had to do all the research on. And I had to make sure it was a house that could realistically have been built in that period and in that area. So again, that was an interesting book in which I started to write around each room. I knew I wanted to structure the novel around six individual sections and each section was set in a room of the house. And the only way I could think of to make that an interesting experience for the reader was to think about a tour through a a haunted house or an, an old estate, like a normal tour that you'd have around a stately home here. And I liked the idea of you moved as the tour group moved through the house. But what I found as I was writing that is that it didn't really come to life. There wasn't anything particularly special about it. It was a series of characters moving around inside a house. There was nothing special about it. And I realised that actually some of the history needed to be present some of the reasons why the house was haunted needed to be explored. And the only way you can really do that in the way in which I'd written it was through a series of flashbacks. Again, that's a very kind of tired old concept. So I tied the flashbacks to a series of objects that are around the house. So if one of the people in the tour group happened to touch one of these objects, they were immediately taken back to a, a period of the past. Mm to a particular character. And as I found these flashbacks unfolding and this particular character was being more and more explored, he started to take centre stage. And I realised that the story was really about him and he was the previous owner of the house and he was an absolute shitbag. And he really wanted to just take front and centre. And so the book then suddenly started to kick into gear when I gave in and let him do what he wanted to do, which was rule. And it was a difficult way of shoehorning my organic process into a commission where a lot of the things were predetermined, if that makes sense. But it worked quite well in the end. And Cemetery Gates were really happy with it. And the feedback so far, it's not been out very long, but the feedback so far has been good. So I was happy that it works. And I enjoyed writing a more traditional genre book. In terms of other commissions I've had, most of them tend to be audio. So again, there are certain considerations and requirements you have to have in mind as you're writing for audio. So for one of the scripts I'm writing, it's a two act thing. So what I'm doing is I'm taking a short story I had already written and I'm readapting it for audio. And that means basically rewriting it because it's it's not first person perspective for a start. So it needs to be redone in that sense. Exposition is a big thing with audio. So most audio drama scripts would be very dull if it was one person's internal monologue talking about the sunrise. So there are ways that you have to write in the sunrise in a convincing way, which gives the audience an idea that the sun is rising without boring them to tears. That's quite challenging. I find the commission projects I work on much more challenging than the things that I write for myself organically. But they're an important part of the writing process. And I guess it would be the same if you're a TV writer or a screenwriter. There are certain beats you have to hit, things you have to include, considerations. It's not the same as I'm going to sit in the cafe at nine o'clock in the morning and see what happens. It's very different. I am grateful for all of my commissioned work. I, I do find it more difficult, but it also teaches me a lot. And I find that audio requirements are by far the most specific out of the commissioned stuff that I get. Yeah. And when writing on a day-to-day basis, and sometimes at the cafe, sometimes at home in the study, are you very 
disciplined in the hours you put in or do you work for a set period of time of, uh, and have a set writing session or is it a certain word limit or is it just instinctive? There are several things, there's several parts to that question. I want to touch on word count and setting yourself a word count target a day because I think that's actually quite a toxic thing to do to yourself, to set yourself an expectation of 2,000 words a day where you don't have any idea of what frame of mind you're going to wake up in, what external factors are going on, whether you're going to have an argument with your kid first thing in the morning, whether the builders are going to be digging up the road over your house, whether somebody calls you and adds stress to your life. Like 101 million things can happen to you that can interfere with that word count target. And you get to the end of the day and you haven't written your 2,000 words, you generally feel a bit shit about yourself, particularly if you are a self-employed writer who struggles with imposter syndrome and you're quite critically hard upon yourself because a lot of us authors are we're not very nice to ourselves so I don't have strict word count targets I count any words on the paper as a positive at the end of the day and even if I haven't done words on the page at the end of the day I am trying to get better at not being too hard on myself because some days you just can't write and at the moment which I've touched on before I am actually creatively almost burned out completely there are things that I am working on slowly and surely. I'm finding artwork a lot easier to get into because it doesn't require a huge amount of brain power, uh, but it's still creating and helping move me forward. But writing has suddenly become extremely difficult for me because the well has burned dry a little bit, has, has run dry. So setting myself unrealistic targets and word count targets and things every day isn't working for me at the moment because I'm just getting my knickers in a twist and tearing my hair out over the fact that I'm not doing what I should be doing. And it's, it's really heartbreaking as well to not do the thing that you love doing. But it is part of a process. You just have to accept and realise, OK, and you adjust your boundaries and your output. And if you've got very understanding publishers or whatever, people that are waiting on you you just go to them and say look I'm struggling and I need more time so that's the first part of that question in terms of a daily routine and how disciplined I am before the pandemic I was insanely disciplined I was nine o'clock to one o'clock every single day without fail writing then the pandemic hit and as I touched upon before suddenly my work environment at home became entangled with my husband being here and working from home and my child being here and schooling from home and that whole thing being so stressful and chaotic that it absolutely undermined my productivity on a daily basis for about a year I would say it just ruined my routine everything because our lives became structured around zoom calls and schooling and do you know what I mean? It was just there was no certainty on a day to day basis. So not only were we all stuck at home, but we were all just on top of each other the whole time. And it's a small house. So if somebody has a tantrum or an argument or a heated phone call, everybody hears it or the TV is on or it just wasn't conducive to working at all, which is why I was so horrendously late with all my projects last year. Productivity went down the toilet and I still am. Um, clawing my way out of that quite slowly this year has been tough for me too personally the first half of the year was particularly grueling and then I went on a very long summer holiday and ever since then I've been really struggling to get that discipline back but it is slowly returning as the world goes back to normality a little bit more I think my brain hasn't quite accepted that things are getting better not yet like I'm still in denial mode and I'm still processing everything that's happened over the last 18 months which was a lot for me and I think my brain's in a bit of shock <laughs> so it's interfering with my ability to to get back into my old life and my old routine but slowly and surely I am I have days where I can't work at all again I have to just accept that that's just how that day is going to be and I will find other ways to use my brain, like I'll paint or I'll try and be creative in any way that I can be. But I'm not back to where I want to be in terms of my routine and productivity and discipline. Before the pandemic, I was Mrs. Discipline, which is why I managed to write as many books as I did in such a short period of time. And I'll get there. I think it's just about being realistic and being kind to myself in that respect. Like we've all been through a lot and it will take time to recover from all of that. 
actually one of the questions I generally ask people is do they feel imposter syndrome and clearly as uh, we're discussing that is something that you're very in tune with yourself as you said earlier about 40,000 words is where you dip in novel yeah. writing and you can be quite self-critical but you recognize mm. that and you mentioned mm. earlier that you wrote a article where you've been open about your burnout there were warning signs there were alarm bells when you were putting down the advice you're recognizing mm. things in yourself and clearly mm. one of those is the, the daily discipline going but I was just wondering mm. were there other alarm bells where you realized wait a second I need to step away because like, imposter syndrome is so common and if we discuss a few of those it might really help listeners who are going through similar things. Yeah I think it's important to make the distinction I think imposter syndrome can be a symptom of burnout. It's not quite the same as burnout. So the definition of burnout, for me, it's not writer's block. It's not where you sit down and suddenly realize you can't write. Writer's burnout is so extreme that it's at a point where you start to question your entire existence as a creative person, where even the very thought of writing exhausts you to the point where you just avoid it, where everything in your life is affected, like your mood, your sleep, your anxiety levels. You're probably more depressed than normal. You might be drinking a bit more than normal. It's a fine line between creative burnout and emotional burnout. And I think just let's just call it burnout for the sake of ease. There are lots of warning signs. Some of those that I've just spoken about, your productivity and your output slowing down and the quality of your work decreasing. The same things that you would associate with depression, perhaps. Burnout is that level of extreme. So imposter syndrome is a slightly different kettle of fish where you are questioning not your identity as a writer, but you're questioning your place at the table which is different. So you spend a lot of time comparing yourself to others and you spend a lot of time looking at their success stories and wondering why yours aren't the same. For me personally, again, being a self-published author came with a lot of issues in that people didn't really take me very seriously for a while. I wasn't invited to the podcasts or the panels or do you know what I mean? Until the magical stoker award nomination when suddenly people then began to open doors for me doors that weren't available before as a self-published writer because there is a perception that's an inferior quality item I guess a self-published book which is ridiculous and very old-fashioned but this industry in general takes a long time to catch up <laughs> with the rest of the world so imposter syndrome is more about you don't stop writing, you keep going, but you're questioning whether or not you should be doing it based on how good everybody else is around you. And there are lots of ways that you can combat that, that I found particularly useful. There are lots of basic things. So if there's a particular author or creative that you follow online, for example, on Twitter, and their success is starting to trigger you and trigger nasty feelings of jealousy or lack of self-belief because their success is not equal to your success then you're perfectly within your rights to mute that person for a while <laughs> until it stops becoming something that triggers you on a daily basis like you can curate your online experience in a way that invites a better mental state if you're really struggling so rather than constantly comparing yourself to other people get off your socials or mute everybody that challenges you in that sense so that you feel more comfortable taking a break from writing for a while until you can readjust your perspectives a little bit building up a network of people around you who support you and hold you up is absolutely vital and I'm very lucky I have I would say five to ten people in an inner circle that I trust of other creatives writers composers um, artists whatever and every time I'm having an imposter syndrome wobble, I just reach out and go, oh, God, I'm really shit at this. And they just always bitch slap me and go, shut up, Gemma, get on with it. And you learn to cognitively retrain your brain sometimes the more support around you have in that sense. And then I'm at the point now where if I finding I'm having an unkind thought about another author, which does happen, or I'm finding my own self-worth, I'm questioning it, I sit down and I look at the stats okay I've sold this number of books I might not be Stephen King but this number of people bought my books and read them that's got to count for something I have a readership I have an award nomination I didn't win but I still have an award nomination that was recognition people are paying me to do my job and so 
gradually you get to a point where you realize that if you let in imposter syndrome you're making your own life much more difficult and I know it's not very British but you have to just put that self-critique away for a little bit you can bring it back out again at the end of your novel to make the novel better okay what can I do better here and this isn't very good and that's fine but if you want to produce stuff you have to get out of your own way and sometimes you can be your own worst enemy but as soon as you recognize that you are being your own worst enemy and you put that in a little tin and just store it on a shelf for later the easier it gets and I still struggle with it most of last year I questioned my entire identity as a human being but then so did everybody because we were going through this global thing right this traumatic event so it's something that I've seen interestingly online because I hang out a lot with writers online again going back to the idea that we're all kind of processing a lot of stuff and we're all struggling a bit at the moment it's like we've got this trauma hangover I'm suddenly seeing the levels of people saying I'm so burned out I've got imposter syndrome I can't do this anymore I can't read I can't write I feel like it's just endemic it makes me sad because I feel like we are all struggling a little bit but the only way through that is to just be as nice to yourself as you can and to try not to obsess over it too much because it's a self-fulfilling cycle sometimes. It's like when you see a writer trying to market themselves online, which is one of my pet hates. And, and it's, again, a very British thing to be self-effacing and a bit sarcastic about yourself. And authors don't like promoting themselves because it's sneered on a bit. But they drop a picture of their book and they go, hey... Yeah, so I wrote this book. It's probably a bit shit, but yeah, maybe you should try it sometime. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, if you don't say nice things about your own stuff, there's a fine line between being arrogant and being someone who's just confident that actually maybe somebody might want to read this. Here it is. Yeah. Read it and believing in yourself a little bit. So it's all right to actually believe in yourself, but it can be difficult. I think you're absolutely right that with British writers, uh, we find it very difficult to promote ourselves. And as a self-published writer and someone who's done a Kickstarter, have you got more comfortable promoting your work or is it still a real challenge uh, to promote yourself? Maybe I'm coming at it from a perspective of having worked in marketing and sales for 10 years, where I know that if you don't shout about something, then people aren't going to know it exists and they're not going to want to buy it. It's like a basic principle to me. If you're writing a book, Unless you're writing it solely for yourself, in which case that's fine. But if you're writing a book and you're writing it for other people to read, it stands to reason that those people might want to hear about it. Once you get over that as a basic truth, stop worrying about the idea that people are going to think you're tooting your own horn all the time. Or If people do have a problem with you promoting yourself, then that they can fuck off, you know. <laughs> Just surround yourself by the people that don't mind. I think it's like a basic psychology rewiring where you have to get comfortable like an actor you have to get comfortable putting yourself out there on stage if you're a photographer you have to get comfortable occasionally having your own picture taken I'm deeply uncomfortable having my photograph taken but it's something that I have to work on if you want to take this seriously you don't really have a choice and we're not in a fortunate enough position I'm certainly not to have a marketing team working for me, to be able to coast off of previous successes so that I don't have to perhaps do as much self-promo. Even the successful authors out there still have to do their due diligence on promoting themselves. I, I obviously had to work really hard as somebody that probably still most people have never even really heard of to get the kind of readership that I have got going. And that that was hours of work a day promoting myself on social media. I would say as a writer, 50% of my time is spent on self-promotion, whether it's an Instagram post or doing podcasts and interviews or articles or, yeah, most of it's on Twitter, I will, <laughs> I will admit. Like building up a follower basis. When I first started out in 2018, I think I had 200 followers. I've grown to 11,000 on Twitter. And that makes a difference because with Twitter in particular, you become part of somebody's daily timeline. You sort of are in their front of mind and are in their consciousness. So the chances are that if they interact with you on a daily basis, when you do publish a book, they might be more likely to read it and then recommend it to people and be part of a conversation about it. So it's very important that you get over any squeamishness you have about pushing yourself forward. There are ways and means of pushing yourself forward without being obnoxious. It is a very fine line. For example, 
turning up unannounced and uninvited in a conversation people are already having to plug your book when it's not relevant to the context of that conversation is a bit of a no-no and I still find people doing that now it's a fine line but it's something you just have to learn and do and again the successful writers out there have got it figured out they get the whole balance between promoting themselves but not being awful about it to their online followers yeah and you mentioned Twitter and podcasts and how you've built your audience. But also, is that where you built your network of creative peers? What you said earlier about imposter syndrome and having that inner circle of uh, creatives that help reassure you. Was that something that developed in person at conventions or, or was it all social media? So I am in the unique position of since I started my writing career, I haven't been to a single writer's convention because the pandemic fucked it all up. I haven't been to a single StokerCon or BristolCon or anything. There just hasn't been any. Next year, I'm going to finally get to go and meet all these people that I've met online, which would be amazing and probably absolutely overwhelming. So I've built up the majority of my, I would say, online community and support network on Twitter and Instagram as well. And it has been invaluable to me. There are a lot of people who are quite sniffy about the writers community. I see a lot of people making fun of writing community hashtags and people's desire to reach out and meet like-minded people. I never really understood that because for me, it has kept me going. So I met my developmental editor, Dan Hanks for White Pines on Twitter. And he was the main reason that book got finished and is as good as it is. I've met people like Laurel Hightower and Sina Paleo on Twitter. And those are two ladies that I then put together an anthology of short stories to raise money for charity. I have met filmmakers and actors and narrators and artists and writers and just a world of people I would never have access to in real life without the convention circuit being an operation. People like Gareth Powell, who you know very well, I met on Instagram, I think. It's an astonishing resource if you know how to use it in a way that complements your mental health rather than detracts from it there are always going to be people that come along that interfere with your mojo sort of energy vampires but on the whole I have made so many friends online through Twitter and Instagram and Facebook probably as well that have added to my life and to my career I can't wait to get into the convention circuit and go to physical events and give these people a hug people that I speak to every week and imagine seeing them in real life if I'm having a bad day I know there are people who will understand and the thing I always it always makes me chuckle is particularly with social media if I have a personal work achievement to announce oh I I sold 5,000 copies of my book. Wow, it's a big milestone. I could pop that onto Facebook and <laughs> I might get a like from Auntie Flo, but generally it's tumbleweed from your yeah. family and friends because they don't really appreciate the struggles that go into it. You could do the same thing on Twitter in your community of friends and the engagement, you could get a thousand people going, well done. And that means something. Like I said, writing is a lonely thing. It's an isolating career. So having people around you who understand imposter syndrome, who understand the struggles, who understand burnout and all these trials and tribulations is absolutely invaluable. Again, I see people who complain a bit about, oh, I don't want to play the game. I don't want to be popular online. I just want to write books. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. If that's what you want your writing career to be about, then do embrace that stop moaning about it <laughs> but for me I thrive off of other creatives and I'm inspired by other creatives journeys and other people's ideas and successes and I, I need that around it's like a comfort blanket around me it sometimes can be problematic and the community online the writers community online has been known to implode especially in the horror space on frequent basis but then we've all been through a lot of stuff lately, like I said. In any group of people, there are always stressful times. Yeah, I strongly recommend writers who are first starting out, reaching out to like-minded people on Twitter and, and making those friendships because they can make the absolute difference in your career between finishing something or not finishing something or believing in yourself and not believing in yourself. And with that, have you utilised any uh, people as beta readers? What's that experience like? And what in your mind makes a good beta reader? I'm slightly warier about beta readers now than I was naively back in the day because 
I am aware that your IP is something that you should treat carefully and ideas can end up in the pockets of other people. But that being said, this is why we, you build up a, a network of people you trust. I have probably about three people who have beta read for me or would be to read for me. And that experience has generally been very positive. So, for example, Six Rooms, the book I was struggling with, I sent to my good friend Laurel Hightower, who's also an author. She's a very good author. She wrote a, an amazing book called Crossroads, and she's got a lot of good stuff ahead of her. She writes quite similar stuff to me. She writes very emotionally. She writes very raw, personal content. We both know what it's like to exsanguinate upon the page because we have a lot of things that we work through together. So we're quite like-minded in that respect. And it's funny, I sent that book to three people. I sent it to Ross, who um, is a Bristol author. Ross Jeffrey is a really solid writer, also Bram Stoker nominated this recent year for Tome, which is a cracking novel. And he read it and he was like, this is amazing. It's brilliant. I was like, oh, OK. My other friend, who is a composer called Brandon Boone, he read it and he was like, nah, what is this? I don't even know what this is trying to be. And I think he got two pages in and was like, nah. And then Laurel read it. And Laurel's feedback was the most useful, constructive, okay, here are what I think the issues are. This isn't really resonating with me. This voice doesn't really belong here. There's some issues with this structurally. And how have you thought about this? And I was like, hallelujah, thank you. Because she had pinpointed what I couldn't figure out was wrong with the book. I knew it was falling flat. I said that before. I just didn't know why. And she was like, have you thought about this? Ah, okay, light bulb moment. Then I went away. Like I said, I added in the flashbacks with the character front and centre and suddenly the book had a personality and I knew what it was going to be as well. Whereas before it was very meandery and just didn't really mean much. So beta readers are extremely useful if you're in a slump, you've got writer's block or you are convinced that everything you've written is shit. But you need to get good beta readers who are not afraid to give you objective criticism and feedback without being overly harsh because nobody needs that because we're all fragile little people once you find them when they've got capacity to take on your work they are worth their weight in gold and dan hanks is another one who read white pines and very much did the same he did like a full report on what worked what didn't what needed to be teased out what didn't like just a proper editor would do so to a certain extent when you go to that traditional model i think you're editor becomes a beta reader of sorts but you want to get the book in a good enough state for a traditional publisher to accept it and that often means for me taking my first draft and giving it to someone for them to point out what the hell is wrong with it there's another author called Aidan Merchant who has been very supportive of my work over the years and he's a self-published writer who has been very useful in terms of just confidence boosting, I think. But yeah, I think going forward, the amount of times I will use beta readers will probably diminish as I get more protective of my ideas and my IP. And as hopefully I work more in the traditional space, I know that I'm going to be working with editors as well. My husband also reads everything. He tends to read it after it's been published and then give me his feedback. But I think I might start utilising his brain a bit more because he's a huge reader. He's read everything. And he has a very, <laughs> he has an engineer's brain, which is extremely well structured and the exact opposite of mine. And he isn't afraid to point out the flaws <laughs> in anything. Uh, and that can be very useful as well. Now, uh, two more questions. It's my belief that writers grow and develop their writing with every story and project that they write. Looking back at your last one or two projects is there anything that you've learnt recently that you feel is going to be a lesson that you apply on your next writing project yes i think i need to stop fucking around with multiple narratives and timelines and write something linear because everything i think i've written that isn't a short story collection has either had multiple narrative threads. The Girl on Fire was written from the first person perspective of four different characters. Multiple timelines like Dear Laura or Six Rooms or White Pines. I, I seem to be very averse to writing a beginning, a middle and an end from start to finish. And I think I'm making my life a lot more difficult for myself because keeping up with multiple narratives is hard work. Keeping the authenticity of character with multiple points of view is hard work. 
timelines are a pain in the ass to plot and then make sure you don't have massive plot holes. I think what I've been doing is exploring some really complex themes and complex ideas and I don't intend to stop doing that but I do think I need to go back to basics a little bit and maybe just try a linear beginning a middle and an end and see where that takes me. Perhaps I'm not meant to be writing those kind of books, I don't know. I've learned a lot of lessons and I'm always learning. I I think the next phase of my career is going to be a huge learning curve for me moving into the traditional space and seeing how the bigger publishers work because I've always been my own editor and I've always been my own force driving myself forward. And now slowly and surely there are other people entering into that space who are there to guide me which was one of my main reasons for wanting to explore the traditional publishing model i am a staunch supporter of the self-publishing and indie space i think it's incredibly rock and roll and i love it and it's edgy and it's progressive and it's much more inclusive than traditional uh, publishing in a lot of ways But I'm also aware that I can't grow as a writer unless I have outside external input from people in the business who who know what they're doing when I sometimes really don't. Like I'm fudging my way through this. I I am actually really excited to see how the next novel turns out with proper input and a proper editor to go through things and make it better with me. I think that collaborative thing is something that I really enjoy as well. Yeah, and I think I'd love to have you as a guest again in the future, in a few years maybe, once you've had that experience and had that growth, and we'll see what's changed from this interview to that one. One final question, though, Gemma. Through all your self-published books, is there one piece of advice that you find yourself returning to consciously when you're writing? Is there one thing that's helped you through your writing career to this point are we talking in terms of writing the book or once it's published and the the success of the book either whichever you feel is most relevant to you okay so two pieces of advice I think one is a practical thing and one is a more kind of conceptualized thing but if we're talking about the book in terms of once it's published and out there and how visible you want it to be and how well you want it to sell then cover design is everything invest any money you can afford to invest and i'm not talking thousands of dollars because that's quite exploitative when you're in a kind of self-publishing or indie space invest as much money as you can afford in a decent cover design and by that i mean think about how that will look on a thumbnail can you read the title text can you read your name Is it a gripping image? Is there a high contrast look to it and feel to it? Is it colourful? Is it different to everything else that's being published? Does it represent what you've actually written or does it completely misrepresent the style of the book that you've written? All sorts of things. Is there a strong theme that comes out from the cover? Like These things all really need to be thought about because as much as we hate to admit it, people judge a book by its cover and particularly in the age of Instagram, Bookstagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter as well. Twitter's kind of um, re-aligned itself to share full-length pictures, which is perfect for book covers. I saw one of the most obvious concrete examples of this is an indie author who probably won't be indie for much longer called Eric LaRocca, who wrote a novella. Novellas sell really well, by the way despite what a lot of people say definitely think about writing a novella if you're self-published he wrote a novella called things have got worse since we last spoke and the publishing team behind him the indie publishing team behind him licensed a painting by an amazing I think Dutch author who paints these wonderful portraits of people that are completely messed up but the colors are bright blues and ochres and reds and then there's this beautiful cover image with this cool title things have gotten worse since we last spoke and when he revealed that cover image it went viral and as a result he sold I think he sold 20,000 copies of that book now which is unheard of for an author just entering the indie space I think he's been writing for a while but this is his first big successful book so the power of cover design is everything and maybe it's because I also now paint book covers for indie authors but I'm very aware that font placement and color and all those things are things you really need to carefully think about if you want a book to do well so that's the most practical bit of advice I can think of for a self-published author looking to get some traction when they publish a book is think about your cover also think about how well it's formatted and edited it is worth spending money again or finding a friend 
or just spending as much extra time as you need learning how to format a book correctly so that it's a nice experience for a reader. I've seen lots of books reviewed poorly because the readers are frustrated with the typos or the layout or the look of the book. Readers deserve a nice experience. So those are some practical things, more practical things to think about if you're publishing through Amazon. If you're planning on sending books out to people, the smaller your book is, the less it will cost <laughs> in terms of postage and in printing. There are lots of practical considerations. There are lots of other platforms other than Amazon to publish on as well. So do your research and test the waters maybe with a novella or a novelette see what works and what doesn't so those are the mechanics that's my advice in terms of the actual writing the most sage bit of advice I hate giving out advice because it, it makes me feel like I'm an authority figure in something I'm really well, not and I'm it, still it, learning it's, it's what piece of advice is good for you the thing that I found that's worked for me more than anything else and it's something that I keep returning to is if you write stuff based on what you think people want to read it won't be as good as if you write something that is what you want to write. If you get caught up in, oh, this particular genre is doing well at the moment, or writers want likeable characters, or they want this, or they want that, then you're going to end up writing something which isn't authentic to you. And readers can tell. They can absolutely tell when something isn't there. Do you know what I mean? The, the, the soul isn't quite there because you got so hung up in what you thought would perform well with readers that you forgot about yourself in the process. If you write for yourself in terms of the things you want to explore and talk about and the things that are personal to you and relevant to you, you will find it an enjoyable writing experience. If you enjoy writing the book, the chances are people will enjoy reading it. And that's the core piece of advice that I keep coming back to is you have to have some enjoyment in the process or people aren't going to enjoy reading it. I think so just try and stay as true to yourself as you can with what you write which isn't always easy when you're on commission and you can't always indulge like we've spoken about but on the whole you write what makes you happy or fires you up or explore something you're struggling with and that authenticity which is a word I keep using again and again but it's so important for people because it gives you a voice and voice as a writer is everything you quite often hear reviewers pick up a book and they say this is in so-and-so's voice and it's clear and it's steady and that's because you know what you're writing and it's real to you and I think that's really important. Yeah that's perfect I think enjoy what you write something that you're passionate about and be authentic is fundamental and I think that's yeah. a great place to uh, end the interview so I'd just like to thank you Jenna so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me it was it was a pleasure. And that was the real writing process of Gemma Amore. If you'd like to hear more about Gemma, you can find all of her details on her website, GemmaAmoreAuthor.com. You can also find Gemma on Instagram and Twitter under the handle Many Little Words, and on Facebook under the handle Little Scary Stories. And if you like this episode, please consider leaving a review. I'm currently a team of one, and the more positive reviews I get, the more authors are likely to want to come on the show and share that process with you. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, or until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally No, it's the harshest mistress of all And life is just a chain A moment spent A thousand hellos and goodbyes Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call I will keep you near Until the world ends And you are safe